Well, we do find ourselves uh, taking a little bit of a break from Romans. Uh, we'll pick it up again uh, towards the uh, beginning of the fall. We're going to do a couple of uh, topical uh, studies and a couple of other texts over the next month or so. And uh, we'll look forward to really picking up in earnest in the end of Romans 9, beginning of Romans 10 in, in a few weeks' time. But for the next two weeks, uh, we're going to focus on the topic of discipleship. And we're going to read this morning Acts chapter 20, verses 18 through 32. And this is going to be a text that we're going to return back to several times this morning. Acts chapter 20, verses 18 through 32. So open up your copy of God's Word to that passage, and we'll get a chance to read it. And we'll, again, look at it several times this morning. Join me in reading Acts 20, verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, Paul said to the elder, Ephesian elders, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, a lot of people talk of finding a church like you might look for a new car while stating the different preferences you want and consumer features and what's going to be best for their family, like you want a van that has 16 or 18 cup holders in it because you never know how thirsty those little ones will get. But churches are not consumer products. 
They are described as families or a flock, as we just read about. A local church really is the visible manifestation of the body of Christ. And so therefore, we are members of Christ's body if we belong to a church. And so rather than cater to felt needs, rather than attract as many people who aren't Christian as possible as a local church, churches are really designed by God to help Christians grow and to stay faithful in their walk. And central to that that task of, of Christian growth is our topic today, discipleship. What's sad is many people who've spent their whole lives in church have very little discipleship. Even some who who find themselves in various forms of leadership have never been discipled and naturally then aren't discipling others. But what exactly is discipleship? What exactly does discipleship look like to intentionally invest your life into others with the goal of becoming more like Christ? What does it look like to be faithful to do what every Christian should be doing in discipleship and not just be busy with tasks? Is Paul unique in Acts chapter 20, investing his life fully into others? How can we disciple others today? So as we work towards answering these questions, perhaps before we give a definition of discipleship, it'll be helpful to consider what discipleship is not. What discipleship is not. First of all, discipleship is not for those who love comfort. The world we live in is obsessed with self-care. I think I've seen probably a dozen or so articles in the last couple of weeks on self-care. Just look it up and you'll find a few, not to mention the many websites fully devoted to your self-care. And you can imagine as we breathe in the cultural air of self-care, it's hard to imagine giving of ourselves for others, investing our energy so that someone else can grow like Christ. And on top of that, most of us struggle with the idolatry of comfort, if we're honest. That overwhelming desire you have to have your home at the precise temperature within two degrees that you are most comfortable at. You know what I'm talking about, right? Or to get the food that you so long for and desire above all other things. Or to have your home just so because you are most comfortable when your life is just so. Maybe you thrive in chaos. I don't know what type of person you are, and maybe that's your comfort, okay? But we love to be comfortable. But look at Paul's example of discipleship in Acts 20. And look at Acts 20, verse 24. And listen to Paul. Tell me if you think he is desiring just to be comfortable above all things. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
Paul didn't love comfort above all. He simply wanted as many people to know Jesus and God's grace through his one life that he had to live. Elsewhere, he calls himself a drink offering that is being poured out on behalf of others. You see, Paul's life is a perfect picture of what it means to follow Christ and to forsake your own comfort. Listen to what Jesus said to the crowds who wanted to follow him. This is a famous couple of verses, and I'm going to read it for you. Luke chapter 9, 23 through 25. You just listen. Jesus says to everyone, the crowds that are gathered all about him, if anyone would come after me, if, if you essentially want to be a disciple of Jesus, if you want to be a Christian, what do you have to do, Jesus says? Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And here we have the great irony of the Christian life. To gain all that God has for us means that we have to be willing to give up all the comforts our flesh craves. Following Jesus includes giving up your passions, your priorities, and instead living for God's passions and God's priorities. You know, Christian growth is, is hard sometimes because we love living for ourselves and our comfort. But a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, has denied himself, seen himself as a criminal deserving of death, every single day and followed Christ. This isn't a description of some higher life Christianity. This isn't a type of Christianity that you graduate to after you become a more holy Christian. Following Christ and not self is normal Christianity. Following Jesus is, is what it means to believe that Jesus is, is God and to believe that he died and to believe that he rose is to believe that he has a claim on your life and that you owe everything to follow and glorify and honor him. So in order to pursue discipleship, you first have to be a Christian, one who is pursuing Christ, not the God of comfort. And you have to be willing to live your life intentionally with other Christians doing the same. And therefore, discipleship is not, number two, just you and Jesus. Discipleship is not for those who love comfort, and it is not just you and Jesus. In church history, a lot of people have thought that Jesus' commands to radical discipleship was a call to be a monk or perhaps a, a nun. Everything in life is out and only God is in. Let me just wear burlap sacks and all will be good because I will take my focus on Christ. Just ask or read Martin Luther and you'll see that that did not work out so well. 
And plenty today think that they can be a faithful disciple of Christ by themselves, without a church family, without, without the body of Christ, that following Jesus is just some intensely personal private affair. I talked to one of my bus drivers uh, who took me back and forth to JFK a few times, and uh, he was telling me one time that, uh, you know, he didn't go to church. He didn't think that was really important for him because his family was a bunch of hypocrites, and they went to church. He says, I pray on my own. I do those things, and I'm good, and they're doing the same things that I'm doing, so as long as I just pray to Jesus, I'm all good. So some say that, you know, following Jesus is just um, a personal affair because they see the hypocrisy of others. Now, others think that they, they get fed by, by listening to an online sermon or, or reading their daily devotionals. And some say, you know what? I am a faithful disciple of Christ because my just me and Jesus time has never been better. But becoming a faithful follower of Christ means being a part of Christ's body. And discipleship is always a community endeavor. Discipleship is a local church endeavor. I mean, just listen how the early church practiced living life together in Acts 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves one with another. They devoted themselves to each other and to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, that is koinonia, that is literally partnership and sharing with one another. And so 1 John 1 verse 3 tells us because all Christians belong to Christ and because Christ belongs to God or partners with Christ and partners with God, so do we then have fellowship with all other Christians, especially those in your church family. See, discipleship is a person-to-person relational endeavor. Third, discipleship is not mentorship. It's not mentorship either. Now, at this point, you may feel I'm splitting hairs, but bear with me. Mentorship is the imparting of information from an expert to an apprentice. It's really a one-way exchange of information. The term mentorship comes from the Greek myth, the, the Odyssey, and uh, there was a man named Mentor, and he was training the next hero of the story, and it was a one-way street that this man named Mentor helped this next hero become the hero. And that's the concept of mentorship and apprenticeship. Although discipleship is often a, a more mature Christian meeting with a less mature Christian, God actually designed discipleship to be a two-way street to help both parties grow to be like Christ. It's a really a mutual learning experience, not simply an expert giving a few life tips on, on how they need to live. It's two people growing together towards Christ. So discipleship is focused often on mutual encouragement. It's not just mentorship. Number four, discipleship is not a program. Discipleship is not a program. Uh, there's an excellent book called The Trellis and the Vine. The Trellis and the Vine. And it starts off with this helpful illustration. 
The author writes, In our new backyard, we have two trellises. One is beautiful, freshly painted. It's attached to the back of the garage. If you had a picture of a trellis in a magazine, it would be that trellis. The other trellis is hiding underneath a very healthy jasmine vine, sneaking through the openings, and is actually barely visible. And when I could see it, the lattice had not been painted in a long time. One side often come detached from the fence due to the incessant prying fingers of the jasmine. And the nice trellis, well, that didn't even have a vine at all. Sure, it looks great, but it's not really doing what a trellis is designed to do. And the connection to church life is then made through the rest of the book. You see, too many churches get caught up on a lot of trellis work, church programs, endless events, marketing blitzes, and no one has ever shown how to disciple the very people, these programs, these events, and marketing is attended to reach. Big events can have a place in the life of the church, but the more events you have, the easier it is to lose sight of people. The easier it is to get caught up in a serving cycle without anyone knowing your deepest struggles, without anyone helping you fight through your temptations. The easier it is for some of you to assume, you know what, I read the Bible one time through at some point. I went to Sunday school as a kid. I, I kind of know this God thing. I've been in church for 35 years. I know God well enough. The discipleship is about knowing others and being known. It's about sharing burdens and studying God's word. It's about being captivated by the glorious God that you serve and that you sing to. Some events are indeed helpful. And we're grateful for you who serve in the events that we have and are involved in the ministries that we have. But, but far more important is to be engaged with one another. And just because you feel like you don't know where to start, let me, let me remind you, discipleship isn't about some program. Even some eight-week discipleship program that you could take in some class or some seminary. Discipleship isn't just for the trained. It's not just for the initiated, the elite Christians. And so our catechism asks the right question. Is discipleship for all Christians? The answer is yes. The New Testament frequently commands every Christian to love and care for one another, faithfully helping one another to live holy lives. And so fifth, we see discipleship is not, number five, only for leaders. Discipleship is not only for leaders. Discipleship is not some sort of internship program or something for the next Sunday school teachers or elders in training, but far from an exclusive club for spiritual giants, discipleship is for everyone. In fact, the whole church should be for discipleship. Discipleship is for the engineer. It's for the college student. It's for the stay-at-home mom and the working mom. It's for empty nesters and couples with a full house. Discipleship is a part of what it means to be a faithful Christian. 
part of what it means to be a part of a good church. And six, we realize that discipleship is then is not optional. Discipleship is not optional. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 28. Turn to Matthew 28. I want you to see this. Discipleship is actually central to Jesus' commission for all Christians. As Jesus appears to the disciples in Matthew 28, it seems likely that he's not only talking to the 11 apostles on this mountain, but the over 500 disciples of Jesus that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 says Jesus appeared to 500, more than 500 at once, and, and this seems to be that occasion. And so far from an exclusive command at the end of Matthew 28, the call for discipleship really is given to every disciple of Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew 28, verse 19. And Jesus says to the small crowd gathered, or 500 people gathered, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, these verses have only one command. It's very simple. Go make disciples. It isn't go get as many superficial conversions as possible. Go get as many people to pray a prayer and repeat after you as possible. It isn't go conquer people's lands and force them to pay homage to your God. It is very simple. Make disciples. Make learners and followers of Jesus Christ. And then there's two other commands that kind of help you understand what it means to make disciples. Look, it says go make disciples. And then what are you to do? Baptizing them. Well, what, how, when do people get baptized? People are baptized when they become Christians. And so, therefore, Jesus is saying, you want to make disciples, first of all, you have to share the gospel clearly with them. You have to help them understand the truth of the gospel. And then you have to welcome them into a church family and, and baptize them into my body. And then he says, what else? Verse 20 teaching them to observe all that I command. So observing all that I command is not simply just teaching and knowing it, but observing it and doing it means that it's knowing and living. And brothers and sisters, that is the heart of discipleship. It's knowing about God. It's knowing what he wants you to do, and it's learning how to put it into practice in your life. This isn't just nominal interest. This isn't just go out and make people who, who, who like Jesus a little bit. This is go out and make full-hearted, devoted followers of Christ. And see, even our church mission statement is essentially reflecting these verses. You have your bulletin. Look on the back. What's the mission statement of First Baptist of Farmington? We exist to honor God or glorify God by making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. 
We exist to evangelize the lost, that is making disciples, and then maturing, helping them, teaching us all to grow and become disciples of Christ. We exist to reach out and to care for Christ's body. You see, as a church, we want everything we do to reflect God's priorities for us, and that includes discipleship the process of maturing in our faith, growing us learners and followers of Christ. And unless you're perfect and have no need for growth, let me be very clear. You need discipleship. We are on a lifelong track as Christians, learning and following ever closer to our Lord and Savior. And discipleship is how we help one another along the way. I think about this for a few minutes. God has angels at his disposal. The Holy Spirit resides in us and continues to work in us. So isn't it amazing and a bit mind-boggling that one of the primary ways that God chooses to work in our lives is through other sinners? in relationship with each other. And yet that's exactly what he calls us to do as we encourage each other to grow in the faith. Turn to Acts chapter 20 again. I want you to see a few things from from Paul's life. You see, if discipleship is really as important as I'm saying it is, wouldn't we get a lot of examples and teachings on the topic? And so therefore, enter Paul in Acts chapter 20. And what I love about this passage, uh, aside from it being kind of one of Paul's farewell messages to his good friends and beloved uh, faithful co-workers and elders at uh, the church in Ephesus, he's reminding his friends the type of discipleship life that he lived, uh, the, the way that he 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 and interacted with the whole church family. How he not only preached faithfully the word of God, but he went from home to home and from Turkish coffee shop to Turkish coffee shop, meeting with one another. Look at Acts 20, verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. That concept of Paul living among them is really at the heart of discipleship. It's about a lifestyle that is known and caught and lived together. And so he says, you know how I lived among you the whole time. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me, the plots of the Jews. You see, everyone knew not only Paul's messages, but also his trials And so as Paul grew and as Paul learned the lessons that he needed to learn as he he cried quite literally through some very difficult times as he matured himself as a Christian, he did it with everyone watching. He did it with his disciples around him, with those who would be engaged in discipleship with him. They understood Paul's growth. They understood Paul's weaknesses. And so we see verse 20. They knew how he did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, 
and teaching you in public and from house to house. See, Paul wasn't just with the elders. He wasn't just with the gathered church, but many people who go house to house. Now, there's a sense in which if you go to this church, I often am actively discipling you through the preaching of the word of God. That is an immense weight and privilege on my shoulders. But that's not where discipleship ends. You're to do this house to house. And you see, the public proclamation of the word of God is, is a rudder that keeps a ship of the local church on course. But discipleship must continue outside of Sunday mornings as it goes house to house. You see, if all you get is a sermon on Sunday, you're missing half of Paul's discipleship equation. That's why we have so many one another commands given to us in the scriptures. Because God wants us, the church, to be about discipleship. So Galatians 6, 2 tells us, bear one another's burdens. You know, to do that, you have to know what those burdens are, and you don't get to know one another's burdens simply by having a two-minute conversation about the weather on Sunday. Galatians 5.13 says, serve one another. Ephesians 4.25 says, speak the truth to one another, applying it to life and difficult situations. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, encourage and build up one another. Hebrews 10, 24, right after it talks about not forsaking the gathering of yourselves together, it says, what do you do when you gather together? Hebrews 10, 24, stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. Stir each other up when you gather together and as often as you gather together to this sort of discipleship, wholehearted desire to follow Christ. James 5, 16 says, pray for one another. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. Romans 12, 10 says, give preference to one another in honor. Romans 12, 10 also says, be devoted to one another in love. Philippians 2, 3 says, regard one another as more important than yourself. And John 13, 34, I love this one. It says we're to love one another. In fact, and Jesus says, the way the world will know that you're my disciples is by your love for one another. Your love for your church family. And 10 more times, we see all throughout the scriptures, love one another. See, every single one of these commands instructs Christians on how we should interact with one another, with other Christians, with your church family. And the richness of these commands and these relationships is a great picture of what discipleship should look like. So at this point, we're finally at a point where we can begin to positively define discipleship. And so we're going to look at our catechism question and answer. And I'm going to read it first. Going to look at the next slide. I'm going to read it first, and then you're going to all read it with me, okay? So 
The question is, what is discipleship? The answer is intentionally investing your life into others with the goal of growing together in Christian knowledge, affections, and applications so that you can present each other mature in Christ. So let's read the question and the answer together. Here we go. What is discipleship? Intentionally investing your life into others with the goal of growing together in Christian knowledge, affections, and applications so that you can present each other mature in Christ. You can see this definition is all over Paul's life in Acts chapter 20. I mean, this idea of growing together, right? This concept that discipleship includes growing together. Do you think Paul came at discipleship with nothing to learn, no room to grow? What does he say in chapter 20, verse 19? He was serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. In Ephesus, Paul actually listened to the other Christians who encouraged him not to do a few things, not, not to go and speak to a crowd at one point. And certainly Paul's discipleship was, was heavy on knowledge with the goal of, what does the uh, definition say? With the goal of growing together in Christian knowledge. What does Paul do in Acts 20, verse 27? I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of, of God. Verse 20, he says very similarly, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, it was not just a dry knowledge. The, the more the Ephesians learned about God, the more their affections were stirred up. And so we see our definition is very clear, right? We are to intentionally grow with the goal of growing together in Christian knowledge and affections. Look at verse 31. Therefore, Paul writes, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Talk about affections. Talk, talk about emotions, right? But it's not just uh, growing together in Christian knowledge and affections, but it's growing together in knowledge, affections, and applications, and applications as well. And so you see very clearly that Paul was very intent on making sure that the disciples in Ephesus knew and understood how to live a Christian life. For he says, verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived, how I applied my faith among you the whole time. And the goal was always about growing towards Christ. He says at the end of verse 21, so that we would be growing in repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You need to see that Paul is an incredible model for our discipleship. And we don't have time in the time that remains to take apart the whole definition. We're going to do that a little bit next week when we look at Titus 2. But in the time that remains, let's focus on just the first two words of the definition and make some then applications to our discipleship. So what is discipleship? It is intentional. 
Discipleship is, first of all, intentional, right? Turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts 1, you can actually go to verse 15. Acts chapter 1, verse 15. Now, have you ever had a meeting that you had to go to that seemed completely superfluous, totally meaningless to what you had to do? I see some of you smiling already, and I know that if you have a job, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because this is part of job. You have meetings, and, and half the time, you don't need to be in the meeting. I mean, that's why I see some of you on your meetings with mute, sitting and having a meeting with someone else, right? Like, as long as you're calling in and you're present, you're good. So there are a lot of meetings that are very meaningless. And far from meaningless meetings, Christian discipleship should be very intentional. Every time we meet, we need to have a goal in mind. If we hope to accomplish everything we saw Paul do, we have to learn to be intentional, really by being selective. So real practically here, it is impossible to have deep relationships with everyone in this room. I mean, maybe you're going to get to a point where you know every single name in this room. Kudos if you do. But the fact of the matter is, you're not going to know everyone deeply in this room. And we don't have a giant church. So though we should love everyone in our church family, we will not disciple nor be discipled by everyone. You see this modeled clearly in the life of Jesus. See, during his life and ministry, Jesus called and focused on 12 men. And of the 12 men, how many did he really focus his most intense attention on? It was three, right? Peter, James, and John. Sometimes Andrew's included in that. But, but most people think of Jesus' ministry, and they think that it was just Jesus walking around the countryside with 12 apostles. But in actuality, most of the time with Jesus were many, many, many more. In fact, hundreds seemed to come and go. In fact, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, you guys have heard of them, right? From, from the Gospel of John. They were part of this ancillary group of disciples. You know, there's hundreds of people who had just followed Jesus around. And before the church was formed, we see evidence of this larger group of disciples because there were about 120 followers of Jesus or, or disciples who weren't sure what to do next, sitting in an upper room in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1, verse 15. We're going to pick up the story here. Look, at, read with me, Acts 1, 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers the company of persons was in all about 120, and he's going to talk to them. Peter, Mr. Foot-shaped mouth, is now having boldness to lead this little band of brothers and sisters, this band of disciples. The Holy Spirit has yet to come. Judas had killed himself after he betrayed Jesus. 
And this group is now trying to figure out what they're going to do, how to maybe find a replacement for Jesus. And so they search out the scriptures and go to verse 20, Acts 1 verse 20. And they, and they find this passage in Psalms and it says, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. And so they realize that that has something to do with um, Judas. And so they look to find another apostle to replace him. And so, verse 21, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us as a witness to his resurrection. And so we get the idea of this crowded room, 120 people, disciples who are faithfully following Christ. And really, there's many options of people who've spent the last three years with Jesus, seeing his baptism, seeing his death, and seeing even his resurrection body. And, and there's, there's a lot of people who are in this category. And so they choose two who are with Jesus for the bulk of his ministry to put up as possible replacements for Judas. And Matthias ends up being the one that is chosen. So for us, I want you to think about this. What does that tell you about Jesus' focus on discipleship? It certainly includes large groups large gatherings. I mean, there are hundreds of people following Jesus all the time who heard a lot of what he said. But then Jesus went and focused on 12 and even more on three. Because in his humanity, Jesus had a limited number of hours in a day and a limited number of days in his life. So Jesus had to be intentional. Intentionality is also found in perhaps the most famous passage on discipleship, Titus chapter 2, and we're going to look at that next week. But you might remember, Titus 2 says that older men are to train the younger men in verse 2. And he says also the older women are to train the younger women in Titus 2 verse 4. And so as we pursue intentional discipleship, we need to recognize that the normal pattern of discipleship is also along gendered lines. Women with women and men with men. Gender, as it is always in the Bible, is static. You don't change from a man to a woman at some point. It's defined. It's God-ordained and has implications on how and with whom you interact with in all of life, including your discipleship. You see, God created gender along with each gender's roles, and so women are to help women understand how to be a woman, and likewise men, how to be a man. And the one glorious, beautiful exception, of course, is your family, where we have everyone living together. And I have three ladies that God wants me to focus on, right? My two little ladies and my beautiful and beloved wife. So our families need to be our priority in discipleship. That's why 1 Timothy 5, 8 says, you're worse than an unbeliever if you don't provide for your own household. I think that's physical provisions and spiritual provisions. Deuteronomy 6 tells us that we should be talking about the Lord regularly in our homes, with our kids, with our spouse. So be intentional to disciple your family first, and then expand that discipleship to your local church. Be intentional. Men, think of a few men you'd like to get to know better, a few men you'd like to read the Bible with. Ladies, 
Think of a few ladies you'd like to regularly pray with. See, clearly in the Bible, we see discipleship is intentional. Jesus selects only a few to focus his attention on. And we see God has designed families, our church, and even our gender to help us learn to be intentional. Discipleship in scriptures is never portrayed as just a casual relationship. So we come to the second part of our definition. You should be intentional and investing your life. Number two, investing your life into others. Go and go back to Acts chapter 20 again. We'll look at Paul's life. Noting how he invested his life. You see, Paul didn't fly into Ephesus, perform for the masses in a giant weekend crusade, preach to thousands, and then leave. No, Paul lived with them the whole time, right? Verse 19 is absolutely clear. He served them, served the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. They saw his humility, his tears, his trials, and he lived with them the the whole time. And, And this unwavering commitment through it all was to the transforming power of the gospel that would be evident in Paul's life and then to their life. And and how long did Paul do this? Was it a full month? Was it two months? I read it earlier. Look at verse 31. How long did Paul, day in and day out, live with the church in Ephesus? What does it say, verse 31? Three whole years. Paul lived with them, taught them, warned them, experienced trials, exposed his own weaknesses. All of Paul was on display, invested in the life of others with humility. See, Paul's investment in the lives of others is also constantly on display in his letters that he writes to various other churches. And he provides a wonderful analogy in 1 Thessalonians 2. Go ahead and turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians 2, 5 through 8. And in these verses, we actually see discipleship compared to a mother's investment in her child. I want you to read Paul's words. It's very beautiful and helpful. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 5. Read with me. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretense for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Gentle like a mother, affectionately desirous of you. There's no closer bond than that of a mother and her child. It's a sacrificial bond, willing to give up sleep, even life itself, for a child. And that's the type of investment of affection that Paul showed in his discipleship relationships. 
He gave willingly and completely of himself. And if you think that that sort of sacrificial labor of love and personal investment is somehow easy, go back one book to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. The end of Colossians 1 gives us Paul's purpose statement for discipleship. Both the goal of his discipleship and how hard he works. Colossians 1.28 says, Him, speaking of Jesus, we proclaim. Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that is applied knowledge to life, that's what wisdom is, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this is the goal of our discipleship. This is the goal of Paul's ongoing ministry, to, to know Christ so that it results in a changed life. And that is going to be hard work. Look at verse 29. For this, for the sake of discipleship and presenting everyone mature in Christ, I toil, struggling with all his energy. Whose energy? God's energy. Paul works literally with God's energy because his energy is not enough so that he might be able to disciple others. Struggling with all his energy and he powerfully works within me. He has to work so hard that he has to rely on God's energy. Discipleship is not easy, nor is it ever superficial. It is conscious, serious, personal investment in another's life. You see, only with this view of discipleship could Paul ever say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. See, those that Paul worked with recognized his labor of love. They got to know Paul well enough to be able to imitate his godly example, to see his flaws and to see him grow. A big part of investing into discipleship relationships is to be willing to be open, exposing your own trials, your own struggles, your own passions, your own tears, and Lord willing, God's victories in the midst of those difficulties. So who knows your private struggles? Because they've seen them, and because you've confessed them. Who's praying for those struggles? That's what discipleship looks like. Now, as we wrap up our time, I want to think about some application with you. Some of you are hearing these things and thinking, how in the world can I put this into practice? How can I change my spots? I'm a leopard and I don't like being around others. Can I change my spots? I don't think so. How is this supposed to work with discipleship, my introvert self? Or you might be thinking, great, now I feel guilty that I'm not in any discipleship relationship, but I don't have any time or even a clue where to start. Well, we've seen discipleship starts with a correct response to the gospel of humble repentance, putting off self-centered living, putting off your love of comfort and following Christ. And so at its root, discipleship is training to become more Christ-like. We've also seen that discipleship is a community endeavor that the church should pursue with one another. This pursuit should be both intentional and a major investment of your life. 
Further, Christ makes it clear that discipleship is mandated. It's modeled in Paul, and it's implied in the vast number of one another passages in the New Testament. And on top of that, there's no one-size-fits-all program available that you can buy from Crossway in some shiny new box. Then you add in the reality that many of you have never been discipled in the past. And it's easy to start feeling overwhelmed. You can throw up your hands and say, I don't know where to begin. Let's start with what we learned from the first word of our definition, intentionality. Start with one. Okay, start with one. Jesus chose 12 out of many more and then three out of the 12 to pour himself into and he's literally the son of God. So how about you just choose one? Don't make a giant list of people you're going to disciple. If you've never been discipled or, or never discipled another person, start with one. It might be someone you know well, uh, maybe a younger person, maybe uh, you're younger and you'll actually reach out to somebody older in the church. I encourage you to do that. Be bold. But choose one to begin this type of purposeful relationship with. Maybe you haven't ever joined a care group. Start there. As they start up again in the fall, we're going to contact every church member and encourage you to join our care groups because that is a major component of what we do in care group. We disciple one another. We break up into men and women separate groups and share prayer requests with one another and get into the nitty-gritties and difficulties of life with one another. So if you're not in a care group, start there. And if you have been discipling, who or been discipled, who are you in turn discipling? If you still don't know where to start, feel awkward calling someone up and, and talking about discipleship, keep this in mind. For many of you, these relationships will not fit the precise mold of some older man meeting with a younger man or an older woman meeting with a younger woman. Just start by getting coffee or lunch with a Christian brother or sister that you want to encourage in their walk with the Lord. Open up your home for play dates with another mom. Initial meetings can look vastly different depending on the stage that you're in. But be intentional and talk about this topic of discipleship. Be open about your testimony. Be open about your doubts, your fears, your struggles, and talk about scripture. So start with one. Second part of our definition was to invest your life in another person. So really, then an application is commit to regular meetings for six months, maybe for three months, maybe for a year. So if you follow through on the first application and commit to one person, how about then committing to a regular time together? This doesn't happen in two meetings three months apart. Now, everyone's schedule is different, and for some, a weekly coffee meeting is absolutely feasible. Others, a bi-weekly is about as much as you can do. But the point is, discipleship is life-on-life -life investment. And it doesn't happen seeing people on Sunday mornings and that one care group that you attend every three months. So remember, care groups are a vehicle for this discipleship. We share and pray for each other in very intentional ways. But if you can't come regularly to a care group, that's fine. Find someone that you can be regular with and a time that you can be regular with. So once you've talked to at least one person and you've set up some regular meetings and discipleship is gearing up, you might freeze and say, well, what do I do? I think first, bring a Bible. And open it. 
Choose a short book to read together. Maybe 1 John. I love that book. It's a great book to start with the discipleship relationship with. Colossians is another great book to work through. Uh, read a paragraph and start asking questions of the text. Bring a study Bible to help you when you get stuck and aren't sure what the, the text means. And talk through the text together. And then perhaps pray through the text together. And think of applications to your life together. But also when you meet, if discipleship is to be helpful, you also should be open and vulnerable. That's our last point of application. Be open. Be vulnerable. A part of intentionally investing yourself means you have to be open and honest when you talk with other Christians. Openness breeds openness. So if you're coming at this thinking that you are the older saint who has your life all together, even if you're a parent with your son or daughter, and that now you're going to go and help this poor struggling young person find out how to be a good mom or how to be a good uh, man or woman, you've missed the point. Discipleship is a two-way street where two sinners struggle together through life that God puts before them. And a great way to start this conversation is to talk about each other's testimonies of salvation, which should always express humility and brokenness over the grace of God. And then talk about your ongoing struggles and God's ongoing growth that he's provided. The point of these next couple of weeks, this sermon series is simple. I want God, God's call to discipleship, to change the culture of our church. I want to see a culture of discipleship develop here at Farmington. As you know, so much of culture is an ingrained way of thinking and living. In American suburbs, there's a certain cult of comfort we already talked about, a belief in God-ordained personal bubbles and a need for space, right, and self-care. Isn't it sad, though, when the world's culture infects the church? See, we should be a church that toils, that labors with all God's strength to disciple one another. Sometimes that's not going to be the most comfortable thing, but it's for our good. My prayer is that the culture of our church should be all about discipleship, so much so that if you cut First Baptist Church, we would bleed gospel and discipleship, bleed making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've got to think a little bit more about discipleship. We've got a chance to think and consider why it is that you have called us to pursue discipleship, how it is that you have privileged sinful little old you and uh, all of us to be investing ourselves in the lives of others. Lord, it's incredible that you have given us this high calling to help disciple each other and to help us grow in Christ's likeness. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful, to, to at least choose one, to be faithful in our care group, to, to, be, to be faithfully uh, thinking and reading through scriptures with others, to be faithfully considering how we need to grow and to be vulnerable and open and honest. Lord, I pray that you would grow us through these discipleship relationships for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.